0: Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Spotlight Africa. I am Asumta Oturu. Spotlight Africa brings you news analysis and current affairs of the African continent, including global issues affecting Africa, the African diaspora, and the global south. Today we devote the hour to the impact of global realignment of forces on Africa and the global south which seems to foster what was once called the South-South Dialogue. It also realizes what the Global South demanded in the 1970s for a new international economic order.
1: It would have been, ironically, much better business for America and for Europe if they had facilitated instead of impeded the growth aspirations and infrastructure aspirations of Africa and Asia and beyond over the past 60, 70 years, they could have had continents and peoples who could be much more productive, who would be able to purchase the productions of the United States at higher quality goods. We could be purchasing from Africa higher quality finished goods as well if they had manufacturing, as many of the African leaders from the 50s and 60s had tried to do like Kwame Nkrumah and others.
0: The relationship between China and Russia presents what is now emerging as a different economic infrastructure. The Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, in his recent speech to 23 Arab League member nations, was quoted as saying in an extract of the speech, begin quote, We are beginning a new era, which would be a move towards real multilateralism, not to the multilateralism which the West tries to impose on the basis exceptional role of the Western Civilization in the modern world. The world is much richer than just Western Civilization, who but not many of you representing the ancient civilizations should know this. And I think the movement is unstoppable. As this happens, Africa will move away from her current colonial prescribed economic status.
2: Africa, historically, sub Saharan Africa, has been fundamental to the global prosperity of the advanced countries. And Africa had a role to play it has a role as a raw material producer we will not allow sub-saharan Africa to escape that okay we do everything to keep sub-saharan Africa where it is also impoverished it's absolutely vital for the prosperity of everyone and this means all the economic structures all the global institutions and the economics we teach everyone is all designed to keep africa exactly where it is
0: i am asumta Oturu. stay tuned to spotlight africa here on kpfk 90.7 fm los angeles and streaming live on kpfk.org <laughs>
1: What I tried to communicate as best as possible in that article, which was first published on The Cradle, just to get across that the, the multipolar alliance is something which is much more than people realize, and there is much effort being made by mainstream Western press to try to paint the multipolar alliance, meaning Russia, China... A variety of other nations of Eurasia, especially uh, Iran, India, being major players, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, others. There's a lot of effort to try to paint it as just another empire of exploitation to be afraid of. There's so much propaganda. When you look at the actual accomplishments, not just the words of leaders in China or in Russia or or beyond, but you look at well, what has China, especially, which is the the biggest economic capability to construct real-world developments, infrastructure industries, what have they done? And does it justify the fear and the propaganda which we are being fed? And I tried in the course of my article to demonstrate that no, this is not just another exploitative empire just like the unipolar, many people call it the rules-based international order led by the United States, Britain, and the old uh, colonial powers of Europe which is really what is shaping much of the transatlantic destiny currently, unfortunately, and it's not a very good destiny, but it's much healthier and it's much more premised around honest business and an idea of building full spectrum economic powers in countries who have suffered a lot of exploitation for a long time in Africa has suffered no uh, you know, more than I think any, any continent on the world under dishonesty, imperialism.
0: That was Dr. Matthew Eret, who is a senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He is a geopolitical analyst and the director of the Rising Tide Foundation based in Montreal, Canada. The major aim of the Rising Tide Foundation is to foster cross-cultural understanding. Dr. Matthew Eret has authored numerous books. And his recent article entitled, Russia in Africa, Connecting Continents with Soft Power, prompted this interview on the impact of the realignment of global forces on African economies. It is this realignment of forces that could bring to reality what the Global South once called for a new international economic order. The then-proposed new international economic order in the 1970s would move the economies of the global south out of the imposed colonial economic structure and their positioning in the world economy. Today, China and Russia want to change that global order to a global economic order that is inclusive and beneficial to all. Now, Dr. Matthew Erette, Explain such a possibility from the current reality. Dr. Eret is a senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He's a geopolitical analyst.
1: Yes, that's right. It, it, the forces of history are already at play, and the West has demonstrated currently that it is holding on to an obsolete ideology which has no role to play in the new era of humankind. And I think that in on February fourth of this year, weeks before the Russian military intervention into Ukraine began, you had the Russia-China joint declaration for cooperation in a new era. And I think reading that is very useful. It's a 5,000-word document, a real powerful, spirited document, which declares a common brotherhood and a common way of thinking about win-win cooperation going forward into the 21st century, which is very much demonstrating its, it's... influence, I think, in the case of the continent of Africa, which was the topic of my my article, which you had read, where I try to get across as best as I can using concrete examples of projects that have been built or are being built or are planned to be built that are tied to the spirit of the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as other north-south transportation corridors, which are transforming and uniting the Eurasian economics area. The entire Eurasia is being united by a new type of spirit of building large-scale mega projects, new infrastructure corridors, which is very—it's much superior to anything we have lived in in the West as far as our relationship to the the Middle East, Southwest Asia, Africa. In the West, there has been a darker agenda since World War II especially, to destroy and subvert the aspirations of former colonialized nations to have economic independence. And we are seeing no evidence that those types of dishonest agendas are underlying the multipolar Russia-China alliance in especially Africa, where, again, I try to go through case studies of Ethiopia, Kenya, Sudan, Egypt, and beyond. Just to demonstrate, well, what has been built? Are they just using words? Are they just giving money in order to create debt slaves as we've seen under the IMF or the World Bank for so many decades? Or are they actually building real things which are provably pulling people out out of poverty, into higher education, into higher standards of living? And most importantly, are they providing nations the ability to increasingly stand on their own two feet in trust and cooperation with their neighbors, which is what Africa very much needs, as do every country needs that. So I I tried to do my best as I could to to demonstrate some of those projects, uh, both the ones that have been built are being built or can be built and are being discussed right now.
0: China today speaks of the Belt and Silk Road, a concept that invokes the Asian Silk Road that linked the East and the West in a network of Euro-Asia trade routes. The current Belt and Silk Road implies the construction of infrastructure, railway lines, and ports that connect the three continents, Asia,
1: Africa, and Europe. It's a bit of both. I think the the potency, power of the ancient Silk Road from the Han Dynasty era 2,000 years ago was that it was a basis of intercultural dialogue, exchange, as well as commercial practices trade routes between east and west from china you have interconnectivity with the the muslim world that was created with the christian world especially with the re- you know the the recovery of the silk road in the 7th century under the tang dynasty where it endured for several hundred years with that you have something very important about the way we tend to organize ourselves as human beings on this earth in harmony with neighbors who don't sound like us, don't worship with the similar rituals as we do, but we have so much more in common as human beings who have who can make things better, can create together, can share poetry and new scientific discoveries. So this is something which is very important for creating peace is understanding. You know, we, we tend to fall into the traps of going to war with our neighbors on behalf of geopolitical manipulation, usually when we are ignorant of our neighbors and their, their traditions, and it's difficult to respect them. So you have so many different points where the the Silk Road idea has high value. And what China did, especially in 2013, was revive that old Silk Road concept, but with some 21st century advances, obviously. So it does involve intercultural dialogue, exchange, sharing, which is important, East and West, but it also involves high-speed rail conventional rail roads being built up with new transport corridors stretching from different points in China all the way through the mainland across one branch in the north is through Russia. Another one goes through central Europe into the the Caspian Sea with ports that then unload goods from trains onto ships, which then bring them back onto trains in Turkey, which can go through into, into Europe. I think the most exciting lines are the southern routes that stretch from Pakistan, you know the China-Pakistan relationship is very important right now, and there's lines that go into Afghanistan that are increasingly coming online into Iran, as well as in, from Iran into Iraq, into Syria, Lebanon, with ports that could then extend into goods going to and from Europe. We have branches that are also on the sea, so I, I discussed the land routes, but you also have sea routes, ports being developed all over the, the Gulf Coast region, as well as around Africa. Many of that involve Chinese funding because, because China has a great economic power through its central banking system that is nationalized, unlike many of the other countries of the West who have rendered their central banks relatively useless for long-term development because they're they're under the control of the IMF, the World Bank, and the city of London. In, in China, they always maintained a control. And thus, they have the ability to emit large-scale credit for big projects with, with low interest, sometimes no interest. As we've seen now, um, you know, China just erased the debts of 16 African nations who had received loans at zero interest. That's all been erased now. It's a very good act of goodwill. But so these ports are being built up all around Eurasia with even Arctic components that involve uh, Russia. And uh, as you mentioned, there's a north-south transportation corridor which is also synergistic. It was first announced in 2001 by Russia, Iran, and India. Because of the the wars in the Middle East and uh, geopolitical manipulations, it has received a much slower start. But what we have seen in the past two, three years is a real renaissance of that north-south corridor that stretches through Turkey, through uh, Armenia, Georgia, into Iran, and it involves about 17 countries. Ports in Iran, Bandar Abbas, being one, but there's several ports uh, that the goods that would sh- be shipped from St. Petersburg, even more more north now into the Arctic, would go to and from into India, which is moving more in harmony with the Belt and Road Initiative. So you have east-west and north-south. And finally, as I point out in my new article on Africa, many of the the diverse projects that China has been working to build. Other countries have, have been working as well. Egypt has has done a lot of good. Uh, some Gulf states as well are getting on board. In Africa are actually not separate projects. There is a, a unifying quality with major transcontinental African rail lines that have been discussed, as well as highway systems.
0: Before you mm-hmm. go into that, maybe we can sort of get an understanding because this seems like promoting what we used to be referred to the South-South dialogue and also seems to promote what in the 70s was discussed as the new international economic order that the Southern countries, countries of the Global South, were demanding. But now that it is actually something that is happening, how does
1: the West view this as a threat? Unfortunately, the West is captured currently by an imperial ideology, which thinks that if their slaves develop independence, that the the slave masters will not be able to continue to reap the advantages that they have from being at the top of the food chain, so to speak, which is very unfortunate because all of history has proved that in fact, it is only when slaves are they do capture and fight for their freedom that they can acquire the mental and physical skills to create real wealth. And it's actually much more preferable. It's better for business when you have thinking, hopeful, creative people who are participating in common projects. It would have been ironically much better business for America and for Europe if they had facilitated instead of impeded the growth aspirations and infrastructure aspirations of Africa and Asia and beyond over the past 60, 70 years. They could have had continents and peoples who could be much more productive, who would be able to purchase the productions of the United States at higher quality goods. We could be purchasing from Africa higher quality finished goods as well if they had manufacturing, as many of the African leaders from the 50s and 60s had tried to do, like Kwame Nkrumah and others. But China and Russia and other Eurasian countries recognize, and I'm glad that you said that, like when Fred Wills from Ghana had announced with many other leaders of the global South in the 70s, the call for a new economic architecture, a new just economic system. They were invoking the spirit of Bandung, the process in Indonesia that gave rise to the five five and then 10 uh, principles of peaceful coexistence, which was arranged by leaders in India and China and much of Africa. Because they could see that the logic of the Cold War of each each against all had no future. It was a logic of global extinction, and the advantages that the the stronger victors of the Cold War, the United States, the British Empire, and I, I do think that the British Empire still has many powers even today that are active through their controls of the Five Eyes, the City of London uh, banking sector. That, that's really where the major power resides, even controlling much of U.S. foreign policy even now. I think that that type of advantage that they think that they got during the Cold War period was illusory because it was premised around the idea of creating a world that was more at war with itself, that had hated, that would grow to despise the United States more and more. Even the United States and, and Europe became increasingly economically weaker and less capable of even having their own, governing their own affairs properly as, a sovereign, as sovereign nations. So Russia and China, I think are, are much more in alignment with the spirit of Bandung, the spirit of the non-aligned aspirations back in the day. And uh, they recognize what what just good common sense business is. you know you don't want to burn the world, you don't want to destroy the world with nuclear war. you don't want to destroy your your partners. You'd rather work to help your neighbors get better so that they they trust you and admire you and respect you and you respect them. It's just good business, and it's much more in harmony, I think, with human condition
2: maniyou soundour magiou beppdoumo afrika ñu bokku xalat bokku gis gis bokkiyene
0: sans foncher voles sou am am
2: telie maniyou dajé ba ñan xajal ke nu sou digante warati ñu nangukene ñu digñu fewel gu dijiterou fokhné la panne ki yow we
0: are more with Dr. Matthew Eret later as we now take a music and station break. I am Asumtauturu. You are listening to Spotlight Africa. on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles and streaming live on kpfk.org. Coming up next, Dr. Eret speaks on the African Continental Free Trade Agreement and the recent implementation of one of the major parts of that agreement, the Pan-African Payment and Settlement System. Dr. Eret refers to the Pan African payment and settlement system as de-dollarization of Africa. Walk together,
2: keep on walking. Rock that boogie. Get your rockin' shoes. We're gonna rock and roll. Come on, cats. Let's go, go, go. Hi,
0: I'm Bill Gardner, host of Rhapsody in Black. I play classic rhythm and blues
2: from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Boogie with Bill Gardner every Saturday afternoon from 2 to 4 on KPFK 90.7 FM. <laughs>
0: The African Continental Free Trade Agreement came into force in January 2021. It is the largest world trade agreement that brings together 55 member countries of the African Union AU. The African Continental Free Trade Agreement aims at creating a single continental market with a population of about 1 billion people with a growth domestic product estimated at 3.4 trillion dollars. The recent launching of the Pan-African payment and settlement system is one of the major aims of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Dr. Eret refers to the Pan-African payment and settlement system as the de dollarization of Africa. Dr. Eret is a senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He is a geopolitical analyst.
1: It's one of several components of a, of a much more comprehensive long-term uh, plan for basically pulling africa into the 21st century and uh, with full full modernization um quickly because africa has to do very quickly what the western parts of the world in europe and north america had 300 years to do africa must must leapfrog very very quickly and and you know china wants to the help they don't they don't have the problems of the west they don't try to ta- talk down to to africa and and tell african nations that you have you're not allowed to have advanced technologies. You you must only have appropriate technologies that do not change your natural ecosystems or, or tribal cultural lifestyles too much, which is patronizing and, and racist, really. So the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, it removes about 95% of the tariffs of the countries of Africa, many of whom have not been permitted to have a trade amongst them, themselves. This is the old plan of empire's divide to conquer does now permit for uh, common easy visas passports uh, across different African countries so up until now it has been cheaper for many countries people visiting wanting to visit from one African country to another one to first fly to Europe and then to fly from Europe back into Africa which is absurd because of the the airport infrastructure airline infrastructure has been um, so underdeveloped. The uh, logistical uh, infrastructure to provide for easy passport delivery and and finalizations have been very, very poor. So this is now really making things streamlined. It's facilitating inter-African trade and development, which is also very good for countries like Africa, Eurasia, which is also moving ahead on free trade agreements with Africa. China is very, very hungry for this as well, and free trade can work very well if all parties are interested and committed to real, honest, mutual development of all participants. If you have dishonesty or multinational corporations trying to get nations to do free trade, they're not going to play by the rules that they want their victims to abide by, which is opening up your, your borders, lowering tariffs, and basically letting thieves come into your house after you've removed your alarm systems we don't see that with Russia or China. It's a very different spirit. Same thing for India. There's a much more honest intention to use these free trade agreements and special economic zones like Russia's building in Egypt or Mozambique uh, for the purpose of actually beneficial trading and and cooperation.
0: So on the issue of the dollarizing Africa, can you elaborate on that, Dr. Eret?
1: Well that's happening at a, at its own pace as well but uh, you know part and parcel with this program is the Pan African Payments and Settlements System up until now every nation for the past 70 years has been forced to settle all payments and trade trade balances through US dollars and having US reserves US dollar reserves basically because the US has been the most powerful economic unit of the world for a very long time it was understood that the US dollar is kind of like it's better than gold you know that's no longer the case. The US is bankrupt beyond bankrupt. It's on the verge of a complete economic and social collapse. This is something which has induced many countries to find alternatives and Russia, China, both have created alternatives to SWIFT. The It's an interbank bank system of settling payments. So China has their own, Russia has their own, which allows for trade balances to be settled in local currencies. Ren, uh, yen, uh, Renminbi as well as Ruples, India and Russia have similar deals to settle trade in Rupees and Ruples. Now with the Pan-African payments and settlement system, local currencies can increasingly be used as well, um, not just US dollars. So it's, it's not powerful yet, but it's growing and it's growing very fast in conjunction with the Eurasian alternatives at the same time.
0: In light of the realignment of global forces, the United States is trying to force African countries back to its camp. And this was the aim of the United States Secretary of State, Antony Blinken's recent visit to key African countries. In South Africa, Secretary Blinken received what some call a lecture from the South African Foreign Minister, Naledi Pandor.
2: uh, come in and uh, seek to teach a country um, that you know we we know how democracy functions and we've come to tell you you do it know, it will work for you I think it leads to to defeat so we need to think in different ways I also think that uh, one of the lessons uh, we also need uh, to learn and perhaps draw lessons from one of the experiences we should draw lessons from Is the reality that there has been a lot of external interference in Africa. And a lot of that external interference has fueled conflict in many African countries, has supported opposition groups against liberation fighters and so on. You know the history, perhaps better than myself. This is a reality. In my uh, uh, view uh, while uh, there may be concern about Wagner Group or Van Dijk, which is another security group which was in Mozambique, there's also a concern about countries uh, that have mineral interests in African countries and are there as a destabilizing force. So I think we need to look at the full plethora of problems that give rise to insecurity, bad governance, and the absence of democracy on the African continent. It's not a one country problem. It's a world phenomenon uh, which results from Africa's rich mineral wealth that has made it a significant target of external players that don't always have the interests of Africa at heart.
0: The second Russia Africa summit is scheduled to take place this October, November in Addis Ababa, the Ethiopian capital, the headquarters of the African Union. Many observers are key to acknowledge the Ethiopian government courage to hold such a summit in the current climate of Western hostility towards the Russian Federation after Russia invaded Ukraine in Ethiopia. The United States currently continues its support of its former ally, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, in an effort to destabilize Ethiopia. TPLF ruled Ethiopia for almost three decades under the umbrella of the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, which was composed of a majority of Ethiopian ethnic groups. Again, here is Dr. Eret, who is a senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He's a geopolitical analyst.
1: They did not appreciate his approach, which I think the South African foreign minister called it patronizing and bullying. And you know, it, it is. I mean, at the same time, Blinken was was doing his idiotic tour trying to threaten African leaders, but trying to sound like he's very nice about it to stay away from Russia and China. You know he's promoting U.S. for Global Fragility Act to provide money to a bunch of countries that the U.S. has has kept underwater for a long time. As if money is really what they need. It's it's not money. It's an honest intention to actually help the people and build the real economy, which there has not been an honest intention. I'm sure this money is tied to many strings attached in different forms of neo-colonial operations like green energy boondoggles, which are again colonial in their own way because they prevent countries from having the type of heavy industrial capabilities that they so desperately require to eliminate poverty and and bring their people into a better way of living. There's also the Countering Malign uh, Russian Influence in Africa Act, which is being uh, passed soon by the US government, which Blinken was supporting. And uh, the South African government basically called this an offensive act because it it prevents countries in Africa from doing business with Russia and uh, sanctions are even being threatened russia and especially ethiopia ethiopia i think is one of the strongest nations on the continent because of their anti-colonial history you know they've never been successfully colonized they fought the italians they i mean they've they've maintained they're one of the i think they're the only african country which has successfully done this and because of that fight they have a tradition and an economic independent a a power to build things like the grand renaissance dam which is an important driver for a complete african renaissance it's a a six thousand gigawatt self-funded mega project, the likes of which we've never seen on the continent, which would be a a driver for not just benefiting Ethiopian industrial hopes and aspirations, as well as civilian electricity, which is vital in the Horn of Africa, but also Sudan would benefit, uh, Egypt, other, Kenya, uh, so many countries, every country would benefit by this. Russia is helping by a variety of ways. They have a military technology and training uh, agreement with Ethiopia. So does China has a military agreement to protect BRI projects like the Addis Ababa Djibouti Railway, which has been built. In, and there's new extensions that can connect that into Rwanda, where other railway already has been built largely with the help of China. I mean, there, there's inter, intercontinental railway, which is very inspiring that China was really assisting with a lot. Russia is helping as much as they can. So, yes, there will be a, a second uh, Russia Africa summit, which uh, will follow up from the 2019 summit. COVID-19 uh, disrupted a lot of the flow that was begun in 2019 when the, the heads of the Russian atomic energy sectors had meetings with almost every, I, I think there was 40 African leaders who they met with to discuss and advance projects for helping Africa attain nuclear power in as many countries as possible, which the West has been preventing for a long time due to what I call technological apartheid. You know, it's only South Africa that's a that has had nuclear power because they were under apartheid racist rule of you know for a long time, so they were allowed to have it, but no one else was. So Russia doesn't think that way. They, Putin gave a speech calling for the 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 lighting up of Africa. That's that's the correct spirit, and I think this coming summit in Ethiopia is is keeping many Western imperialists awake at night, having nightmares, and Blinken and Ursula van der Leyen and and you know many other technocratic puppets in the West are being deployed to Africa to try to threaten, bribe, do everything they can to keep Africa under the uh, the control of, of the city of London and, the, and Wall Street. But I don't see that. It, they're not being very persuasive or seductive these days. I don't see it working.
0: Yeah, because uh, Africans have something to contrast. 500 years of history and recent years of exploitation that. You have given us so much aid, and we still remain the same. So, so that's kind of something that it's hard to sort of uh, explain. Yeah, uh, that um, the U.S. will and the West will try their best, but uh, I think the Russians are determined, and I think the Africans have to be committed and say this is what we need to do, rather than being dictated and this given an ill advice that actually works against their
1: interests yeah absolutely absolutely and you know many african countries i think 16 or maybe 20 refrained from um voting at the u.n against russia regarding the the situation in ukraine that was a a major coordinated courageous point of resistance as well where they stood together and they said we're not playing into these idiotic games the west destroyed iraq they destroyed syria they destroyed afghanistan and now they're crying crocodile tears over a situation in Ukraine which is very different. There's no shock and awe, there's no destruction of of mass civilian targeting the way the US did under NATO bombing Libya. None of, none of that. It's a very different situation and it has much more to do with the fact that NATO has been growing and encroaching upon Russia's perimeter for decades while installing an anti-Russian missile shield which is openly discussed and installing puppet regimes that are Full of literally Nazi fascists, as we see with the governing structures uh, of what came in in 2014 in Ukraine under the control of the CIA, the National Endowment for Democracy, Victoria Newland. I mean, the, Russia was provoked and they, they were pushed into a corner by an aggressive, dishonest agency in the West. And uh, I think, yeah, the African nations who have been so manipulated and abused by this same agency recognize that now is the time to take a stand. And uh, the fact that you have such a strong economic and military intelligence capability coming out of both the Russia-China mutual alliance, it's given them a power to do things they could never have done beforehand, uh, which, is, which is lighting up, I think, a ho- I hope a very bright and positive future.
0: Yeah, it is. One, when one thinks of uh, being able to travel by train from Dhaka to Djibouti, I can't wait to get on board <laughs> on that train.
1: <laughs> uh, me too. No, it, it's, it's amazing. And uh, yeah, I, ha- I have many friends who have already traveled a lot in, in, uh, in Kenya um, as well on the Mombasa-Nairobi rail. It's a, it's a smooth, very affordable, high-quality rail system that has been built with China's help. And industrial corridors, agricultural corridors are being created along the way. Um, and this is easily going to extend in to, up into, into Ethiopia and there's so many things that have been moving forward. China is already helping on the on the Western side in Senegal, building up high-speed rail. This is obviously part of a, a much broader design and, and you see it with the African integrated high-speed rail network that, w- that involves nine lines. Some of them are high-speed, some of them are standard, standard electri- electric uh, railways. But it's it's beautiful. It's really a very strong vision for the future. So yeah, I, I'm looking forward to traveling on this too.
0: But I'd like to understand why Russia and China have taken this type of approach uh, that is contrary to the West. I'm pretty sure it's not their interests are there. I'm sure, but there has to be something else that they are looking at things differently rather than the way the West. The lens that
1: the West wears. Oh, most certainly they are. There, there's a variety of of reasons. I think, um, as you pointed out, they are looking at things differently. There, there is a different cultural matrix um, in the East, which is premised on. A, I think you know these countries are increasingly defining themselves as civilizational forces, and which is more than the simple, the simplistic idea of nation states. Which emerged out of the 17th century um, after the Peace of Westphalia in, in Europe, you know, and, and the nation-state innovation had a lot of good to it. It, it prevented, it, it created a foundation of, of international law uh, based upon a, a mutual respect for the borders of your neighbors and to not infringe militarily, you know, if, if you ab- if you abide by those rules upon another uh, nation's property and uh, territories. But there's some problems with it too. There's not an appreciation for the deeper cultural continuity of peoples and societies through the simplistic idea of nation states as geographical entities. Um, whereas yeah, India, China, Russia increasingly are awakening a deeper appreciation of that. And they don't want to sacrifice or s- sacrifice those ancient traditions on some idiotic geopolitical game um, that could lead us into nuclear war and you know <laughs> a burning of the earth and peoples, so they 're playing it much more wisely. I think they're they're appreciating the historical forces much more than the West is, and they know that you know time the West has benefited or, or emancipated its people towards a, a better way, you know ab- abolishing slavery in the nineteenth century, which was a fight any anything like that was because the West at different times had leadership. Which brought us into harmony with natural law. You know, it's not just man's law. There's also man's law, they say, is only good to the degree that it conforms with God's law. And that used to be people in the West used to be more sensitive to that reality. And we've lost that in the world of Hobbesian, you know, my might might makes right type of thinking. Whereas in China, you still have a concept of the mandate of heaven, that the the laws, economic and political, of of a society are, are only legitimate under the Confucian and even Buddhist worlds. If it's coheres with the mandate of heaven, you know, and and otherwise the law is not just Russia has an Orthodox Christian connection, which also sees very similar principles. And and India has something similar and many African countries feel the same way. Yeah. I I think that there's a certain appreciation for principles and the idea that if humanity is going to manifest our true natural potential, we have to abide by certain laws uh, higher laws, even if they're not written down. And that involves respect. It involves thinking about the future. It involves avoiding conflict if possible, uh, you know, of, of in, unless it's defensive and uh, and trying to create unity instead of division, which is the empires always do the opposite. Empires always get their, their slaves to fight each other. They divide to conquer. They keep their victims as dumb as possible, as uneducated as possible so that they cannot think in a creative, powerful way. When I look at the effects of Russia, China and and their their policy orientation, it's the opposite effects that I'm seeing results because they appreciate something else.
0: That was Dr. Matthew Eret on the impact of Russia and China relations and interest in Africa and this realignment of global forces has the prospects of moving Africa into the path of economic prosperity. Dr. Eret is a senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He is a geopolitical analyst and the director of Rising Tide Foundation based in Montreal, Canada. The major aim of the Rising Tide Foundation is to foster cultural understanding. Dr. Matthew Eret has authored numerous books and his recent article entitled Russia in Africa, Connecting Continents with Soft Power, prompted this interview on the impact of realignment of global forces on the African economies. We now take a music and station break. I am Asumta Oturu. You are listening to Spotlight Africa, here on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles, and streaming live on kpfk.org. Coming up next is a presentation of what brings to light an understanding of why the global south views the realignment of global forces as economically beneficial over 400 years
1: has washed away our fears and strengthened the pride now we've turned back the tide
0: At this point, we would like to express our gratitude to each and every one of you who has called or who is calling right now or is making a pledge online at kpfk.org. We are very grateful to each and every one of you now making a $60 pledge and are getting our thank-you gift, the ebook four-volume set on the Clashes of the Two Americas, which we are offering as a thank-you gift to you, our audience, for your support of Spotlight Africa, KPFK, your favorite radio station. We are very appreciative of each and every one of you for making it possible for us to meet our pledge goal for this hour your support of your favorite radio station kpfk is very important to you because in giving financial support to kpfk you are acknowledging the significance of the information you receive on a weekly basis about africa on spotlight africa you appreciate the voices which each week speak to the African reality here on Spotlight Africa. You appreciate this unique channel KPFK for its programming that features diverse voices. You appreciate this unique channel KPFK because it serves as an alternative to the mainstream media. So call 818-985-KPFK or 818-985-5735 and someone is always ready to receive your call. And you can also pledge online at (laughs) kpfk.org. Africa, we venture into an uncharted territory because we believe in the need to understand the global realignment of forces which ultimately will realize a multipolar world. China and Russia are championing that cause, and increasingly, the BRICS is that reality. Today, as we continue our coverage, of these new unfolding events that ultimately will realize a multipolar world and how it impacts Africa, we welcome you, our listeners, and our audience on board so we can together walk as keen observers and as witnesses to these unfolding events. And today on Spotlight Africa, we are offering you ebook four-volume set on the Clashes of the Two Americas for a $60 pledge to your favorite radio station, KPFK. This ebook four-volume set on the Clashes of the Two Americas is a significant read for those of our audience who are interested in following the emerging trends in the global arena and for those who want to understand why the United States of America became what it is today. What happened to the United States of America, a land whose constitution is admired by many countries in the world? What happened to the United States of America, a country believed to be a beacon of the world? The e-book four volume set on clashes of the two Americas. To the reality of the United States of America's foreign policy, which today is divorced from the core American principles and values of freedom, equality, and rights enshrined in the United States Constitution. We now turn to Matthew Eret, co-editor of the e-book volume set on The Clashes of the Two Americas, which we are offering today to you, our listeners, as a thank you gift for a $60 donation to Spotlight Africa and to your favorite radio station KPFK.
1: Well, I I wrote, as you know, a series of books on American history to try to get a sense of how, how has America become such a basket case of arrogance and has done so much destruction, despite the fact that there are so many good American people that I know. And for me, one of the anomalies that perplexed me was why do so many good American presidents or why do so many American presidents die while in office by gunshot or by other mysterious circumstances? There's been eight over the young, very young nation, really, in, in relative terms, right? Um, as far as the world's first official republic. And in my research, I began to realize that there is not simply one USA. and And if the U.S. had been intrinsically evil... And that's all it was as a simplistic one-dimensional evil beast from the beginning. It would not have survived even. I don't think it would have survived this long. And it's because there I, I noticed that there is this fight between two opposing identities within the historical currents of the US over time, which at different times have seen the US act as a very positive influence for its own people as well as for the world. And at other times, unfortunately, most of the last 70, 80 years, except for the small period of John F. Kennedy, who was only in there for three years before he was murdered, it hasn't really acted in accordance with its own foundational and moral uh, principles. So there, there are many examples, yeah, where the US has done well uh, for itself and for the world, but we haven't experienced a lot of that uh, since. Uh, You and I have been been alive, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) We now take a music and station break. I am Asumta Oturu. You are listening to Spotlight Africa here on KPFK. 90.7 90.7 FM Los Angeles and streaming live on kpfk.org.
1: Maybe you've been listening to Pacifica and KPFK for years, even decades, and you appreciate how important KPFK is in your life. If you're a forward-thinking donor who wants future generations to benefit from KPFK's independent journalism and unhindered creativity, then join KPFK's Legacy Circle and include KPFK in your will or living trust. For details, visit our website at kpfk.org, and thank you for considering KPFK in your future gift-giving plan so yeah.
0: Yeah, because even uh, the assassinations of presidents, the only one we all know is uh, Kennedy and, uh, is it Lincoln? Those are uh, the only two. Otherwise, in between, I, I didn't know. And, of course, the attempt on uh, Reagan. Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. Those are the ones we sort of are familiar with. And it's, it's always useful to look at, well, what what was subverted because of the murder of these leaders? And even in the case of of Reagan, who was a very mediocre personality, if you ask me, I, I don't think he was <laughs> anywhere near as strong minded as the, the, the former two people who you brought up in the list. And there's many others. Despite that, he was not a technocratic Malthusian of which there are very many in Washington embedded within the deep states, you know, the civil service, the permanent bureaucracy that's been infested over decades by this. These ideologues, it's like a cultish um, ideology that has shaped the the infiltration of many of the most powerful institutions of policymaking circles inside of Washington, including the Rand Corporation, which is at the heart of many of the most destructive policy changes since 1949, both as far as military, cultural, economic. You have to look at the Rand Corporation and the ideologues managing that. Trilateral Commission, which took over over the dead bodies of people like Bobby Kennedy and was ushered in by David Rockefeller, Henry Kissinger, George Shultz, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski. They were all members of this Trilateral Commission group in the 70s. And Reagan didn't get along with a lot of these ideologues. And he did have a positive agenda in some ways, especially when it came to his relations with Indira Gandhi, with uh, Lopez Portillo, of uh, the president then of Mexico. And also with the Soviets, you know, um, he was in a back channel negotiations with people in the Soviet Union at the time to end the uh, the mutual assured destruction balance of terror system that had been managing the Cold War. And he, he, his approach was he took the advice of certain individuals, specifically Lyndon LaRouche, uh, then an American presidential candidate who um, was pushing and promoting heavily this idea of a strategic defense initiative, which Reagan liked a lot. And it was based not really on the george later on george bush perverted this idea but the original concept was based as as reagan offered it to the soviets a mutually developed and mutually controlled system of new technologies new new fusion-based technologies that would power high-intensity lasers that could deactivate very quickly, any nuclear warhead launched anywhere on the earth, and both the Russians and the Americans would jointly control this system as far as building up a system of trust and, and beginning to train science and technology to serve humankind once more instead of simply building bombs and war-making material. So that was originally a very powerful idea which would have upset a lot of geo geostrategists strateg- uh, who were afraid of the rules of the game being broken. Um, as well as Reagan's general outlook towards wanting to help Mexico, Argentina, India industrialize. So yeah, his, his near assassination at the hands of uh, was it Hinckley?
0: Yes, it was Hinckley. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and Hinckley was a family friend of the the Bush family, right? Who was Reagan's uh, vice president, which would have made George Bush, former CIA director, president immediately. Very similar to the the near death. Uh, experience of Gerald Ford, who had Nelson Rockefeller, Trilateral Commission Rockefeller, as his vice presidential, uh, or his vice president, and you know that people forget the case where one of the Charles Manson family members, some idiot brainwashed girl, took a shot at Gerald Ford and just missed him by a hair's breadth. And had he been hit and killed, then it would have been Nelson Rock, a Rockefeller president, in the seventies which probably would have uh, accelerated a lot of destruction in the world if, uh, if that had happened. So, you know, there, there's, there's this ambiguity. Does it mean that Gerald Ford was a good guy? No, no, no. Does it mean Reagan was a good guy? No, I don't mean that either. But there's nuance. There's a lot of gray area that people tend to overlook by trying to sim- oversimplify. And I'm a Canadian, and we're told as Canadians to, uh, we're given a very overly simplistic story of America as this one-dimensional sort of empire arrogant beast and we as as you know as canadians are are somewhat t- are told that we are superior in many ways because we always stayed loyal to the british empire which is why today canada is still a monarchy with a privy council and governor general um and we we never became a And we we're told that that's why we are so wise because we never got our hands dirty and by by remaining loyal we knew that in time her Majesty would eventually grant us rights without us having to fight for our freedoms, which we are told is why we have this great democracy in Canada, which appears to be, you know, we, we certainly have comfort. We were given comforts, no doubt, but comfort is not the same thing as freedom. And Benjamin Franklin even said for those who would, you know, sacrifice their freedoms to ensure some security don't deserve security or freedom. And I think people are now beginning to see especially in the last few years, that the government of Canada is actually not the demo- this, this rules-based model of democracy. Nobody voted for the, the wars that we're supporting in Ukraine, uh, the bombing of Libya, the killing of Gaddafi that Canada participated in. Nobody voted for that. The freezing of bank accounts, you know, if if, if Canadians w- donated $40 for the, uh, the Freedom Convoy a year and a half ago, many, many Canadians saw their bank accounts frozen unilaterally by the government. For the crime of sponsoring, uh, you know, <laughs> the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa, there's actually this other thing that we never dealt with in the in the heart of the Canadian government, which at the very least America did have a battle, and it's an ongoing battle. And I think the whole effort to uh, to bring in RussiaGate and prevent the presidency of Donald Trump from putting, you know, actually working with China, with Russia, with other countries to do business deals and to build cooperation that was something that was subverted by the whole Robert Mueller Russiagate which as it turns out we now know through the Durham report that was pub- published a-, a couple of months ago that the FBI literally lied about every single thing and they never had any evidence to back up anything that went into their investigation into that
0: Matthew Errett and Cynthia Chung authored the e-book volume set on the clashes of the two Americas, which we are offering as a thank you gift to you, our audience, for a $60 donation to your favorite radio station, KPFK. Interestingly, upon reading this ebook volume set on the clashes of the two Americas, one suddenly realizes that today's Western economic policies towards Africa were no different from those Britain imposed on the United States of America in the early decades of America's independence.
1: I, I think that this is one of the most important lessons to to be uh, gleaned from the current situation of the world and from world history in general and there's, there's things that are very similar between the early U.S. colonies that had declared independence and had fought to establish a sovereign economic architecture outside of the controls that had dominated the U.S. colonies, which were always just on the outskirts of the global British empire for many, many generations, right? But they'd always been dominated by the rules set by the city of London. The British empire in many ways was a corporatist, fascist global system of of feudal it was called feudal capitalism because largely it wasn't feudalism in the sense that there were there was private enterprise appearances of of pseudo democracies here and there but it was largely an integration of the government with the world's biggest private uh, conglomerate at the time the british east india company that had already merged with the the dutch east india company in in the world's first sort of corporate merger and acquisition that had their own mercenary Their own mercenary army that operated in India, across the world, and in South America, everywhere. And one of the key policies, and they interfaced very closely with the city of London. That's sort of the the city within a city. It's a private complex within London. It is not London. It is within London. It's a one square mile where all of the the centers of global finance, just like today, back then it was the same thing, are, are located as a nerve center of global finance. The Bank of England is just one element of that. And this this zone interfaced with the British East India Company to keep a a system of of speculation, uh, wealth extraction um, in place, slavery in place globally in order to keep the world in a state of relative stasis to be better controlled. And and part of that involved the necessity of of funding constant wars between neighboring peoples um, wherever possible and also preventing them the 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 victim nations from accessing manufacturing which is why britain the first thing they did when they went to india is they destroyed the textile industry of india that had formerly been the most advanced textile industry of the world they did the same thing for china and then they forced india to produce opium as their new their new way of making money as a as a as a resource that would not benefit it would just sort of create a climate of corruption of addiction for the indians as well as especially for the chinese who were expected to buy the opium and Thus, the dragon, the danger of the rise of the Chinese dragon, with the, which the British always feared, was subdued. So I'm saying all of this just to give this the sense of the evil of what the American uh, founding fathers were dealing with. And they they were not allowed to have industry. Every time they tried for over 100 years, really from the earliest days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, every time it, an effort was made to create a manufacturing output or or, or process their own iron, like at the Iron Ironworks that were built up in Massachusetts. Every time that that was attempted, it was immediately destroyed economically by Brit- by the British that would flood the markets with cheap goods that would undermine the local local hat manufacturing or, or sh- horseshoe manufacturing factory that was trying to start up. Or they would just outlaw, ban manufacturing in the colonies, which they did for, for decades and decades. So... After the revolution, America was politically independent, but it was not economically independent. They still had unpayable war debts that they incurred by by European banks to fund the the, the war against the uh, the British Empire. They had no economy. they were they were dependent upon agrarian agriculture as well as slavery because the British had cultivated and enhanced slavery from the days of the the British Royal Africa Company that was set up in the se- early 1700s. John Locke was a big player in that. And they 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 brought in like something like eight million Africans in the 18th century before the revolution that made the US colonies dependent, especially in the South, on slave labor. So, you know, in the early stages, I think it was every one of the 13 early states had committed by the by the 1790s to abolish slavery. It was gonna take a while to wean because it's like a drug, right? Cheap labor. So, but there was a plan, commit a commitment to wean off of this drug. By encouraging what Alexander Hamilton had as an insight, which is manufacturing, build up production, invest in new technology, invest in new discoveries, by by creating a national bank that was supported by Washington and John Jay and many others, that bank was able to then federalize the local state debts, create a harmonized union for the first time where the states were able to work with each other instead of fighting each other, which is what they were doing in the 1780s. When you had the Articles of Confederation, there was no ability to have taxation. It wasn't a nation, and they had no ability to harmonize their their actions as, as a people with, with a common destiny. That couldn't be done when all of the different states were were fighting with each other for scraps or for, for territorial possessions. It was only a matter of time before the early America was going to get reabsorbed economic, uh, back into the mother country. And so... It required courage, genius, really, by the part of Hamilton and his and his colleagues, to subvert the the traitors like Aaron Burr, who were always working to build up British-directed fifth columnists inside of America to subvert America's ability to have a military. Even like Britain didn't want the British troops remained in the United States until the 1790s. It was still an occupied even though they were independent, they were occupied by British troops that were largely had, had, had their headquarters in British Canada.
0: And with that, we come to the end of our conversation with Matthew Eret, who together with Cynthia Chung, authored the ebook four volume set on clashes of the two Americas, which we are offering as a thank you gift to you, our audience, for a $60 donation to your favorite radio station KPFK, I am a soon we have also come to the concluding moments of our program thank you very much for listening remember spotlight africa broadcasts are now archived on the kpfk website and as kpfk.org for any comments please feel free to email us at spotlightafrica at kpfk.org before we go We would like to thank each and every one of you who responded to our request and have now taken our thank you gift, the e-book four-volume set on the clashes of the Americas, which is a significant reading for the understanding of the United States' current position in the world and why other nations are calling for a multipolar world. We appreciate each and every one of you for your donation of $60 to your favorite radio station, KPFK. As a non-profit community radio station, KPFK relies on you for the largest share of KPFK's income. To us, your financial support is your expressed gratitude for what we do here on Spotlight Africa, KPFK and the larger Pacifica family. So until next time, peace and love, stay strong, stay tuned to KPFK and please keep those calls coming and the number to call is 818-985-5735 or 818-985-KPFK and you can also pledge online at kpfk.org. Coming up next is KPFK special fund drive programming and coming up at 4pm African music from Africa and the African world on Aphrodisia with Nambi. <laughs>